Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, the home of the open mind. Thank you for tuning in, hopefully you're enjoying the show. And indeed there would be no show without you. We're currently free, completely non-profit and available on demand from alchemyradio.net and iTunes. And our listenership is increasing every day, which means that the associated costs are increasing also. So thank you to everybody for your donations. It's an absolutely massive help and it allows us to do the work that we are doing. Our donate button is on the website, as is our subscribe button and pretty much everything else you need there as well. And all support and assistance is hugely appreciated. Check out our Twitter account. It's pretty busy. Twitter.com forward slash Alchemy Radio. Get following there and interacting with all your feedback, guest suggestions and everything else. We're on Facebook too. So on to the show. This week's guest is Laird Scranton. Laird is an independent researcher of ancient cosmology and language. His studies in comparative cosmology have served to help synchronize aspects of ancient African, Egyptian, Vedic, Chinese, Polynesian and other world cosmologies and have led to an alternate approach to reading Egyptian hieroglyphic words. He has a degree in English from Vassar College and became interested in Dogon mythology and symbolism in the early 1990s. He's studied ancient myth, language and cosmology since 97 and has been a lecturer at Colgate University. He also appears in John Anthony West's Magical Egypt DVD series, lives in Albany, New York and his writings include books and articles published or taught by Colgate University, Temple University and the University of Chicago. His most recent book is The Velikovsky Heresies. Laird, it's great to have you on Alchemy Radio. How are things? I'm good. I'm pretty, pretty well here. I'm in upstate New York where we have just been hit with some fairly major snow. So we have uh, snow almost as high as you can see cars go by in the street. Well, it's funny because in Ireland here, snow is a relative novelty and we get very little snow. When we do, even if it's maybe a quarter of a centimetre, the whole country tends to shut down. We cannot deal with snow here at all. <laughs> so we just get rain, 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 and we've had particularly heavy rain over the last couple of months now. It's been uh, almost apocalyptic in a sense. Uh, yes, I know you've had some terrible storms come your direction lately, I know. Yes, but we'll, we'll deal with it and we'll push on, and uh, I suppose there are much bigger forces at play as well, and we will get into them. But before we talk about what it is we're going to talk about, and it'll be new information for a lot of listeners, let's talk a little bit about your background, Laird, how you got from where you were to where you are now. Okay. Um, I grew up on the west coast of the United States, and I went to college at Vassar College, which is um, in New York State, about halfway between where I am in Albany and New York City. It's about uh, 45 minutes or an hour and a half north of New York City. Um, and I studied English and I worked as a computer programmer. And maybe 20 years after I uh, graduated college, I became interested in an article about a little African tribe called the Dogon, who um, have a, they have a very interesting culture because it is their culture is a kind of an umbrella over um, symbols uh, of many ancient cultures. And so I started pursuing ancient um, creation traditions. And then I also became interested, actually back when I was in high school, in my Portland, Oregon days, I, um, I became interested in Emanuel Velikovsky, who was um, uh, a friend of Einstein's who was very controversial. And Portland had been a, a seat of college student support for Velikovsky. And so I became interested in writing a book about him. And so a few years ago, I, I took a, a break in my cosmology writing and uh, started working on a book about Velikovsky. 
And it's with specific interest we're going to talk about that book, The Velikovsky Heresies, Worlds in Collision and Ancient Catastrophes Revisited, because there's some absolutely fascinating work in there, and you've gone into such depth. So can you give us a brief outline about who Velikovsky was and what was it that made him so controversial, Laird? Okay, Emmanuel Velikovsky was um, a Russian-born um, psychiatrist, actually. He um, was the first uh, licensed psychiatrist in the state of Israel. He was a longtime friend of Albert Einstein's. Uh, he and, Al- and Einstein edited an academic journal uh, in Berlin for a number of years, uh, and they both worked together with uh, uh, other people to try to help found the um, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And they eventually became... Uh, colleagues at Princeton University. So Velikovsky was a, a fairly well-known person. His his main leanings were psychiatry and and history. And uh, he he came to New York with his family to research a book that was actually um, a combination of historical psychological um, text. He was writing about uh, an Egyptian pharaoh called Akhenaten, mm. and he saw parallels between. Um, the character of Oedipus and the pharaoh Akhenaten. And so he, was, he intended to write a book called Oedipus and Akhenaten. But as he was researching that book, he became sidetracked because he, he came across a, an Egyptian papyrus in the Columbia University Library that seemed to describe upheaval in Egypt that, me, that was very similar to the ten plagues of Egypt in the Bible. And being a historian... He, he was very interested because he, up until that time, he hadn't felt there was any historical basis for the story of the exodus from Egypt. Mm. And so he, here he had an actual written document that made it look like it was an historical fact. For someone as in, interested as him in that period in history, that must have been like a complete bolt from the blue in terms of having that information validated. We know he had many suspicions, but to actually have that affirmed historically must have been huge for him. No wonder he was sidetracked. <laughs> yes, it, absolutely. It was huge for him. And uh, he could also see that um, the type of a people that was being described in Egypt couldn't, could not have been a localized effect. It had to have been an event that happened that was uh, at least regional, if not global. Mm. And so um, he decided to start, since he was at the Columbia University Library where many of the ancient texts were being kept, he decided to search through texts contemporaneous texts of other cultures to see if he could find any references to the same upheaval. And what he found was references in virtually every culture at about the same period to the same upheaval. So basically we're talking about different cultures all over the world that were supposedly disconnected who have this theme running through their histories. That's right. They're all reporting similar thing happening at about the same time in history. Okay, so where did this lead him to? Well... He noticed that a very odd thing was um, was happening in the in the texts of these cultures that the name okay the, the cultures were assigning the upheaval to a comet, and so it made Velikovsky think that um, a comet had made a close approach of the Earth and had created havoc. But the problem was that the name that these cultures assigned to Venus in whatever their language happened to be eventually became, I mean, the name they assigned to the comet eventually became the name of the planet Venus. Uh, and th- this uh, confused him. He also noticed that none of these cultures included Venus as a planet 
prior to about 1500 BC. They all um, they may there were, could be discussions of Venus, but or there could be symbols that represented Venus, but they were always given in terms of images that looked like comets. And so he was detecting this this common thread of a relationship between a destructive comet and the planet Venus. And of course, that wouldn't have been conventional wisdom at the time at all, would it? No, not at all. As far as uh, traditional astronomers were concerned, Venus was formed at the same time as all of the other planets. Um, as a matter of fact, Venus was considered to be the most Earth-like planet. In the 1950s, some scientists were even proposing that it would be so Earth-like that we could actually colonize Venus. So what so, did he do with this information? He decided to collate it, and rather than just kind of sit on it, he took things a step further, and what a step it was. Can you tell us about that? Yes, and Velikovsky was a very talented guy and had a lot of knowledge that crossed a number of ac academic disciplines. He wasn't just a historian or just a psychiatrist. Um, he was interested in a lot of other things. He was interested in astronomy. He was in interested in ancient languages. Uh, he was interested in ancient myths. So he looked to the, the myths of these ancient cultures that talked about the planet Venus and talked about this comet. Well, first of all, the comet um, was called by various names of various cultures because they were widespread from each other. This is the point at which terms like typhoon and hurricane enter the vocabulary of these cultures because there were you know, terrific storms, uh, there were great volcanic eruptions, and so forth. Um, then uh, Velikovsky started looking at the myths that related to the planet Venus, and the, the classic one that most people are familiar with comes from ancient Greece. It talks about the idea of Venus um, having been, uh, having sprung from the head of, of Zeus. In other words, being born from the head of, well, Zeus is a, is a mythological counterpart to Jupiter. Mm. So um, the idea was that Velikovsky was being presented with was the idea that Venus had somehow been ejected from Jupiter. Um, he says that in ancient cultures, in the mythologies of ancient cultures, it's very easy to identify um, Venus because Venus always is the goddess who's born into the tradition. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. I can only imagine what it would have done to the, uh, well, to the establishment because whether it's history or science or whatever field it might be, it tends to be the case that uh, you don't really rock the boat, especially if we're talking about academia. And he did exactly that with his ideas and his writings. Yes, and uh, so in 1950, he published a, a highly controversial book that was a runaway bestseller called Worlds in Collision. And in this book, which was very thoroughly researched and very um, in, documented in great detail within the book and, and footnoted in great detail in the book, his theory is that Venus must be a recent planet. It can't be billions of years old. It can only be a few thousand years old. That Venus, it looks as if Venus were formed by uh, an astronomic event similar to when the comet slammed into Jupiter um, a few years ago that somebody impacted Jupiter. According to the Greek myth, uh, Jupiter swallowed another goddess. Mm. And then Venus was born. And so, um, based on these ancient texts, Velikovsky comes up with descriptions of Venus when, when it was originally commented on by these cultures. Venus 
isn't even considered to be a planet. It's uh, so bright in the sky that you can see it move across the sky in the daytime like the sun. And so the ancient cultures classified it alongside the moon and the sun, not alongside the planets. And so, even, go ahead. Just to interject for a second, Lord, even going back to very, very ancient examples of art and symbolism, there is this common thread of that image of Venus alongside the sun during the day, almost side by side as it, as it goes across the sky during the day. And I mean, that's something that if, if people care to look up for themselves, they will find time and time again. That's true. That's absolutely true. Um, based on the scenario, this is a, a, very, a fairly complicated scenario. Velikovsky uh, traced through what the ancient culture said happened. And he concluded that after Venus was ejected from Jupiter, that as a comet, it roamed the solar system. And having, having come out of Jupiter, it was in the plane of the planets, the same uh, plane that the planets orbit in. And so it crossed the, pl- the paths of the planets, and every so often, it would create havoc. He said that at one point, Venus um, actually collided with Mars and created damage on Mars and knocked Mars out of its original orbit. And he said that Venus made uh, a very close pass of the Earth around 1500 BC and caused a number of significant events that, that the historians can't explain how or why they happened. Um, there was an enormous eruption of a volcano uh, called Thera on the island of Santorini um, in the um, Aegean around 1500 BC that put the end, put an abrupt end to the Minoan Empire and also is credited with having ended the the uh, Middle Kingdom in ancient Egypt. Um, there was an enormous fluctuation in the magnetic field of the Earth around that same period of time that no one's quite sure why it happened. Uh, that period is one of the most volcanically eruptive periods in geological history, and nobody's quite sure why that's true. And so there are a number of different effects that make it look as if um, something major happened around 1500 BC. So Velikovsky is claiming that that's the same time period as the exodus from Egypt, the time of the ten plagues, and uh, when Moses and the Israelites um, fled Egypt. Mm. And a lot of the effects that are reported in that story of the Exodus are effects that you could uh, attribute to a large volcanic eruption. Um, boils on a person's skin can develop to pe- for people who are down downwind of the eruption. Um, depending on the the minerals that are in the the volcanic ash, they, it can turn rivers and and bodies of water to red or to a, a different color. Um, the ash can poison water and cause vermin who live around lakes and, and streams and so forth to leave the streams. And so there are a number of different, uh, the uh, eruptive plume that comes out of a volcano looks like a pillar of smoke during the daytime and looks like a pillar of fire at night. Mm. And so there are all these different effects that, that relate to that period of time that Velikovsky says are just natural consequences of, of what happens when two astronomic bodies come close to each other. And they are all, I suppose, uh, perfectly plausible, but they weren't examined in this way up to then. So what was the reaction to this new body of work like from his academic contemporaries? Well, there was a very complex reaction because 
Velikovsky was already a known personage on the on the world scene, so he was not somebody who could just be um, shuttled aside and say, you know, don't pay attention to this guy. Um, the academics uh, were very concerned, uh, especially the astronomers. Uh, there was an astronomer named Harlow Shapley at um, at Harvard University who tried to convince Velikovsky's um, publisher not to publish the book. And he actually went to some fairly extreme lengths. He organized a letter-writing campaign against Velikovsky's book, and when that didn't work, then he organized a boycott by the universities of the textbook division of the publisher who was publishing the book, trying to arm-twist them into to canceling the book. And so to get around that, Velikovsky's publisher... Uh, came up with a very creative solution, actually, from my point of view. Uh, what they decided to do was, rather than cancel the book, they transferred their rights to a runaway best-selling no um, novel or book to one of their competitors who didn't have a textbook division. What an interesting thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that shows some, some integrity. Um, they, uh, the publisher did bow to um, some of the early pressure from Harvard University. They ended up firing the editor who signed Velikovsky's book, which seems uh, a little un unjust. Uh, so the academics had good reason to be upset with Velikovsky because uh, he was, he, he was uh, em engaging in a number of different kinds of uh, activities here that were uh, threatening to the academic community. Um, for one thing, um, it looked to them as if he was trying to um, resurrect sort of a fire and brimstone religion that, that the academics had been trying to, to compete with for, you know, 100 years or so. Yeah. And also the idea that a planet could only be a few thousand years old completely undercut um, a principle that underlies um, Darwinism. It's called the principle of uniformity, it, that uh, the idea is that for the processes of evolution to to work their way through things, they need very, very long periods of time of uninterrupted sameness. And so Velikovsky claim, claiming that, no, the world had not been a calm, peaceful place, tranquil place for, the universe had not been a tranquil place for millions and millions of years. In fact, there had been an upheaval as recently as a few thousand years ago, was a real game changer for, for the astronomers. And of course, at the time, that must have seemed blasphemous because the work of Darwin, and continues to a certain extent to this day, seems to be considered to be absolutely bona fide, 100% correct, despite the fact that Darwin himself intimated that his work was incomplete and that there were huge gaps in it. Well, that, that's true. I mean, but the, the academic community tends to get behind whatever their current theory is, mm. and they'll, they'll stick with it to the very, very end. Um, as an example, um, I have a friend who named Jeff Marcy, who is the head of uh, Berkeley's Search for Earth-like Planets, and he says that as a con he wrote an article uh, a year or so ago that says that as a consequence of their studies of these exosolar systems, one of the things they've come to realize is that neither of the two theories we have for planetary formation can be right. They might you know, they, theoretically they could be right here, but they they don't seem to hold water anywhere else, and so um, that essentially leaves the astronomers without any viable planet formation theory. Mm. And one of the things that Velikovsky's theory did was it it 
um, contradicted the theory of planet formation. So there were there were lots of different reasons. Velikovsky also had the unmitigated gall to to cross the unwritten, you know, the unspoken boundaries of different disciplines. He used myths and ancient texts to support an, what was essentially an astronomic theory. And the astronomers weren't equipped to to answer <laughs> answer theoretical questions that were founded on myth. Yeah. As far as they were concerned, myths were har- hardly any better than fairy tales. So Velikovsky was a real problem in a number of ways for the the academic community. And how did the public at large respond to it then? Because we're here talking in 2014 about Velikovsky. So obviously the information did manage to permeate that uh, the barrier that was put up by academia and it got out into the mainstream. So what was that reaction like? Well, there were articles that... Um, that um, were the summarized Velikovsky's um, book before it was published as a way of promoting the book, and those were hugely popular. And the book itself was also hugely popular, um, largely because of the controversy. And if if I had to generalize, I would say that uh, younger readers, younger well well educated readers, college students, and so forth, tended support to support Velikovsky, and older, more established re- readers tended to doubt him. Okay, so there was almost like a kind of, um, I won't say a hippie movement, but um, a youthful academic movement that got behind the work. Now, was that, do you think, or what's your opinion, Laird, would that have been an anti-establishment type thing that we often see uh, happening, not just in academia, but in every walk of life, in every generation? Or would it have been based on the actual information that Velikovsky was offering? Or would it have been a combination of both, do you think? Well, this was really pre this was before the times when the, young, the younger generation was was looking for uh, to define themselves by rejecting their parents. This was a group of college students who, if you look at their high school photos, already were their parents. Okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is a this is this is not a group of hippies. This is a group of 1950s college students, and so their support for Velikovsky um, was was based on youthful enthusiasm and um, a search for answers, you know, new answers to old questions, I would say. Um, and sometimes the support was well-founded in, um, in on, it had a factual basis, and sometimes it didn't. And there, there are certain researchers who were, uh, one in particular who was originally a Velikovsky supporter, a, a very avid Velikovsky supporter, who is now a rabid Velikovsky uh, naysayer. So it seems so, to have been based on evidence and an open-mindedness as opposed to anything else, really. I would say so, yes. Well, speaking of evidence and open-minded then, your book, The Velikovsky Heresies, is extremely interesting on a number of different planes, but it's essentially a re-examination using, I suppose, more recent discoveries and advances in science and beyond to back up a lot of the claims of Emanuel Velikovsky back in the 1950s. So let's delve into your book in a little bit of depth. And what, what are the main points for you that were most interesting when you were doing the research? And what really stood out in the work that Velikovsky was doing that made you kind of sit up and think, well, aha, hang on a minute. This just makes too much sense not to document. Okay, well, that that's uh, really not... Um not really the way I came at it. I had a 20-year history of, of familiarity with Velikovsky, and I watched over time what hap- happened was that new scientific announcements would come out that seemed to support Velikovsky, but the people making the announcements were not 
ever crediting him. And so there was this controversy that, from the public's um, point of view, had ended in around 1972. There was a symposium held in San Francisco that ostensibly, as far as the public was concerned, put all of the questions to rest, and, and it was a settled issue, and Velikovsky was wrong. But in practice, what was happening was that every new discovery that was being made astronomically about Venus, or about Mars, or about comets, or about Jupiter, seemed to support Velikovsky. Um, this started even back in the 1950s. There was a whole, whole trend of discoveries that supported Velikovsky um, in interesting ways. Um, for one thing, um, Velikovsky had, had said that um, his theory about the formation of Venus implied that electromagnetics played a much larger role in the in interactions between planets than had been previously thought. And so and it was his opinion that um, astronomers were going to discover that there were electromagnetic waves or radio waves coming from being emitted by Jupiter. And he tried to get his friend uh, Albert Einstein to, to get, get behind researching that possibility, to put some weight behind trying to find out if that was true. And Einstein sort of deferred. He, he, you know, he wanted to maintain his friendship, but he didn't want to get involved in the controversy. Right. And um, a couple of years later, um, a pair of astronomers who were researching some other aspect of Jupiter accidentally discovered that there were radio waves being emitted from, from Jupiter. And so, Velikovsky, um, Einstein did an about-face about um, in terms of Velikovsky personally and promised Velikovsky that he would um, authorize whatever tests Velikovsky wanted to have made in Einstein's name from that point forward to, to test whether Velikovsky's ideas were coherent or not. Um, there was another, oh, there was a problem with that because uh, Einstein passed away suddenly about a month later. He died of an aneurysm. Uh, so, Einstein never had the opportunity really to support Velikovsky. And there's an interesting footnote to Einstein's death in that, uh, anecdotally, it has been said that he was found with a copy of Velikovsky's book on his deathbed. Yes, and I haven't been able to ascertain whether that's actually true or not. Um, the, the story is that there was one book open on Einstein's desk, found open on his desk the next morning, and that, that was Velikovsky's book. But it really doesn't um, matter to me whether the, the story is true or not, because Einstein and Velikovsky were longtime personal friends, and clearly Einstein had been embarrassed by the, the issue of the, the radio waves and, and from that point forward could be expected to fall on the side of Velikovsky when it came to questions that had to be explored. So I don't really, th I think it's a moot point. I think that Velikovsky would have supported, Bel I mean, Einstein would have supported Velikovsky regardless. And how much of a help then to Velikovsky in terms of the initial backlash uh, from his contemporaries, was it that Einstein was openly researching with... I suppose a positive mind, the work of Velikovsky. Well, it really had no beneficial effect because um, opponents of Velikovsky would claim that, that that was not true, that Einstein had not reversed himself because he didn't live, didn't live long enough to actually act upon it. Okay. And so they, just, they would just simply deny it. But, um, okay, there were a number of other... Um, Velikovsky's scenario um, came along with 
a set of reasonable consequences. And I just pretty much like any scenario, um, Velikovsky looked at at the the process by which Venus was formed according to his theory. And he said, if this is true, there are certain other things that we should expect to also be true. For example, um, if Venus is a young planet, then it hasn't had time to cool down. And so when we arrive at Venus, when our probes get to Venus, we should discover that it's very hot compared to the other planets. And of course, we should bear in mind at this point, as you said earlier, that conventional knowledge or conventional assumption was that Venus was, uh, was habitable at that point for humans almost. That's right. And so, so Velikovsky said that one of the proofs of his theory would be if we got to Venus and discovered that it was very hot. Now, we did get there. We discovered that the surface was hot enough to melt lead, um, <laughs> which is it's pretty hot. Yeah. Uh, Velikovsky's detractors say, well, look, Velikovsky didn't quantify what he meant by hot, so this doesn't count. Well, that, 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 that's flimsy if ever I heard anything. <laughs> yes. Okay, Velikovsky said that because, because Venus is a very young planet, we're not going to find that it has a whole lot of impact craters, which is one of the ways that astronomers can verify the age of a body, an astronomic body, is the more craters, the older the body. Mm. And so um, some of the detractors of Velikovsky, like Carl Sagan, said, well, look, this is where you're going to be proven wrong because we're going to get to Venus, we're going to find all these, these craters, and that's going to prove that Venus has to be more than a few thousand years old. Well, they got to Venus, and what they discovered was an almost pristine surface. And so, what the astronomers did was they announced the discovery that the surface of Venus was pristine. They didn't credit Velikovsky. Instead, what they said was, clearly, some unknown geological process has completely resurfaced Venus. <laughs> to me, that seems amazing. <laughs> yes, it does. It seems amazing to me that they can get away with citing an absolutely invented theory based on absolutely no science, science that they themselves say is unknown, and that that's preferred <laughs> over what Velikovsky <laughs> predicted to be true. Absolutely staggering. And, and does that continue to this day to be just the accepted norm then, yeah? Absolutely, that any time there's any kind of a finding, actually, uh, uh, my impression is that a young astronomer's career depends on not mentioning Velikovsky, never, never support, seeming to support him. And so anytime there's a new fact that turns up that might possibly support Velikovsky, it's always announced hand in hand with some other new theory that, whose effect is to distance the find from Velikovsky. So, in essence, what they're doing is they're preempting any potential smoking gun with regard to Velikovsky's theory, then. It, it just can't be the case if we, if we take that party line. Right, that's right. And, and so there have been... Uh, what I tried to do with my book was I, I came into the book not really uh, having taken a side about any of the questions, uh, but I realized there had been a 60-year controversy about Velikovsky that should, to my way of thinking, should have resolved itself a long time ago. It couldn't be that complicated that, and it couldn't be that ambiguous you know, with all the facts they've learned about um, the planets and the comets and so forth. There, there had to be some fact out there that we could that would turn the controversy one direction or the other. It would either show Velikovsky to be flatly wrong, or it would show him to be possibly right, mm. or at least certain aspects of his theory. And so that was my mission when I uh, began to write 
book was I wanted to explore all of the science that had happened since Velikovsky died in 1979 and ask the question, does this, how does this stand in relation to Velikovsky? Um, does it seem to support him or does it seem to contradict him? And in and among these facts, is there a fact that we can point to that says, here's where the controversy turns? And you see, that's and a very interesting standpoint because I think science is littered quite often with people who will look to look for facts to fit their own theories, whereas you're coming in completely open-ended on both sides from it. So it could have gone either way or could have swung either way. So what way did it swing? Well, in, in the end, uh, I'll characterize it for you. There, uh, Velikovsky's scenario in, includes a number of different, um, how can I say this, transitional points where if one fact goes against Velikovsky, a whole piece of a scenario, if not the entire scenario, falls down. Um, for example, um, if you could find the, if you prove the existence of granite on the surface of Venus, granite takes millions of years to form. So if they had positive proof that there was granite on Venus, Venus couldn't possibly be as old, as young as Velikovsky says. Right. Okay. Now, at each stage of Velikovsky's scenario, you've got a handful, I would say a half dozen, of these kinds of considerations that if any one of those considerations goes against Velikovsky, that piece of his theory falls to the ground. And, and if, if it, what I found is that um, if Velikovsky's right, those half dozen points um, are all explained away by a single theory, the same single fact that Venus is young. Mm. However, if Velikovsky's wrong, the scientists are required to come up with elaborate explanations to explain these half dozen factors that, that fall outside of their normal parameters. Right, sure. And, and to me, that's not the way that a theory works that's flatly wrong. A, a theory that's flatly wrong shouldn't consistently produce these open questions that have to be somehow manipulated and explained. And in a fantastic way, as you've described earlier on. <laughs> Right. So, um, so what I did was I traced through Velikovsky's scenario point, point by point from the birth of Venus to um, the latest probes that have visited Venus. And basically what I, what I saw myself as doing was, if, if you imagine a television uh, police drama where there's been a murder mm. and they're bringing in suspects, they're vetting the su suspects to find out who they're going to accuse of the crime. And so... All they're looking for when they question the sub suspect is some fact that gets the suspect off the hook. Yeah. Where were you, where were you on the night of Saturday the 16th at 9, 9 p.m.? If you can prove where you were, then clearly you didn't commit the murder. Well, so that's what I was doing with Velikovsky. I was saying, is there a single fact at any of these stages that can show Velikovsky definitively to be wrong? Because if so, then his theory can't be right or that piece of his theory can't be right. And so I wasn't trying to prove Velikovsky right or wrong. I was trying to vet his theory. And so I w went to Jupiter and I said, um, is there a perspective from which a planet could have been ejected from Jupiter? The, the astronomers all say, no, that couldn't possibly happen. But I know that the traditional theory for how our moon formed was that an astronomic body slammed into the Earth and the moon was ejected from the Earth. 
So any process that can happen on a small scale can happen on a large scale in astronomy. I know that for certain. Mm. So you can't flatly say that Venus couldn't have been ejected from Jupiter, even though it looks like it might be um, implausible. Okay. Okay, then I, I found a study by a Chinese astronomer who was trying to explain why the core of Jupiter is cooler, no, it's hotter and smaller than it ought to be, according to theory. Um, Carl Sagan had said to Velikovsky that one disproof of his theory is that when we got to Jupiter, we, um, if Velikovsky were right, there should be areas of Jupiter that were, had been vaporized by the whatever event created Venus and that should re remain intensely hot now. Okay, so according to this Chinese theory, um, at some point in Jupiter's history, a body ten times the size of the Earth smashed into Jupiter, sank to the core, and vaporized the core. And as a result, the core is much hotter than, than it should be and much smaller than it should be. Well, I also know that on Jupiter that you've got this gigantic swirling red spot storm that reaches all the way down to the core of the planet, or at least they think it does, and works as sort of a dumbwaiter to shovel, shuttle material upward to the outer atmosphere. And it's um, many times wider than it needs to be to have ejected a planet. So we have both uh, a theory that explains uh, how an event could have happened to create uh, Venus and a mechanism by which that um, vaporized material could have been ejected from, from Jupiter. And of course, it's probably worth bearing in mind at this point that so many of Velikovsky's contemporaries, such as Carl Sagan or whoever it might have been at the time, would only require one, in inverted commas, disproof to completely throw all of his work out the window. Yet, as you systematically go through these so-called disproofs in the book, they're not being ticked off in the way that Velikovsky's contemporaries would have hoped or expected at all. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure what to find. I had uh, one person comment. I, I uh, participate in in um, some forum sites. Uh, Graham ha Hancock has a forum site where different questions can be discussed. And one of the people on the site was saying, well, look, if Velikovsky were right, there are three Galilean moons around Jupiter that are in resonance with one another, and we should have expected the Galilean moons to have been disrupted. They shouldn't still all be in resonance with each other if, if Velikovsky's right. And so, I, anytime someone raises a point like that, I, I pursue it. And what I discovered was, there aren't three Galilean moons, there are four, and only three of them are still in res resonance, one is not. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, they would have been disrupted. Looks like one was. <laughs> right, so <laughs> there's another smack uh, in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, now there's another interesting point. Um, most astronomers consider Jupiter's atmosphere to be a pristine sample of the primordial cloud that surrounded the sun that the planets are supposedly formed from. Hmm. Okay, so what that means is that we have the same potential for materials in Jupiter's atmosphere that we have in the original solar system. Which means that, theoretically, if you could form a planet from the material in the solar system, you could also form it from the material in Jupiter. Okay, now also, when it comes to these exoplanets that are being studied, 
there's at least one case where they've discovered that um, two um, rock, stony Earth-like planets larger than the Earth were formed from a large giant gas planet like Jupiter by some event that split the planet in half. So we know that it's possible, in practice, to create a planet from a gas giant. Okay, and that's something that was totally dismissed in the past. Right, but now with these new studies, we have a whole other body of material to compare to that that points us in the right direction. And how do some of these points then tie into the myths and legends, which again were always, and to this day, continue to be discounted by general wisdom or convention? We do have so much historical record of ancient catastrophes, which a lot of people seem to assume they're fairy tales or they're the imagination of somebody. But that's really not the case because science is starting to prove that a lot of this could have happened. And historically, seems to, the dates are starting to tally, I think. Well, yes. I mean, you only have to look at, at Schliemann's work. Who this, this is the guy who, did, who found the city of Troy by following clues that he, that he discovered in myths. There's a certain level, I mean, one of the problems for people who study myths is it's hard to distinguish what might be factual from what might be fictional. Mm. Um, and that's part of what I have to do with my work on cosmology is is be able to separate those two. But yes, there's certainly a level where, uh, at which certain myths um, are reporting things that are historical and that are factual. So it's very much the case then that a myth can be, once somebody knows how to discern the information, a myth can be used almost like a treasure map when trying to discover the truth about what may or may not have happened in the solar system. Well, the, the right myth might. And uh, my, in my experience, it's the oldest myths that, that do the best job of that. As time went on, the myths in some cultures came, became soap operas. They became literature and they became fiction. But if you trace back where the myth came from, um, it usually, in my opinion, it usually connects to something that, that seems very factual to me. Okay, I get you. So going back to your book, The Velikovsky Heresies, what else did you unearth that was really standoutish for you and that you kind of thought, well, do you know what, I'm, d I'm definitely heading in one direction or the other. And we, we know now that the direction, of course, is that the Velikovsky body of work is certainly barking up the right tree. What was it that kind of made you think, yeah, yeah, this, this is where it's going? Okay, well, there are a couple of different points that to me are, are irrefutable. Um, I was looking for, okay, Velikovsky says there were two, two major points at which Venus in one case and Mars in the second case made close approaches to the Earth. Venus um, created havoc, according to Velikovsky, around 1500 B.C., and Mars created havoc around 750 B.C. Mm. Well, if you look at 750, the period of 750 B.C., there's all sorts of scientific evidence to suggest that something very major happened at that boundary. Um, for example, you, you have major fluctuations in magnetic field. You have a majorly volcanically erupted period. You have climate change all over the world to the point where um, crops that were traditionally grown in China for many centuries could no longer be grown there. And uh, Germanic tribes migrated southward from where they, their original homes had been. And all sorts of suggestive evidence that said, look, we, we're having climate change here. They have reco um, recorded evidence of climate change in, in the Aegean and in Italy and places like that. But 
the more telling circumstance to me is uh, a little fact that I came across in a book called um, uh, Asian Archaeoastronomy. East Asian Archaeoastronomy is actually the name of the book. And uh, in the book, one of the things they mention is they're talking about total eclipses of the sun. They say that virtually every total eclipse of the sun that was reported since 709 BC, they have been able to confirm with computer calculations to the date and the place. Not a single solar eclipse that happened prior to 709 BC has been able to be confirmed to date and place in any culture. Now, these are eclipses who are reported by otherwise um, respected observers. Many times the historical chronologies are based on the same observation that the computer calculation can't verify. Okay, so I know that there are, there are only a couple of things that can interfere with the calculation of a solar eclipse. This is supposed to be clockwork. So the fact that we can't calculate eclipses all by itself implies that there was a change in motions of either the Earth, the Moon, or our relationship to the Sun. Right. And there can't, it can't be anything but that. So, so something happened. Something major, something major happened at 750 BC. It might not necessarily be what Velikovsky said, but he's pointing to the right period. Mm. Okay, there was also a major change in the absorption, or absorption rate of, of ionic materials by plants at 750 BC approximately. And this change is such that none of the radiometric calculations they use to date things works across that boundary. So again, we're looking at a big gap there. Right. So now anytime you hear a researcher say, well, we know that this temple from 3000 BC pointed to the star of such and such at such and such a date, you know it can't possibly be right because there's no software calculation that can accurately calculate it. We have no idea where the stars were prior to 709 BC in relation to us. None of those alignments are legitimate. Yet so many researchers will point to specifics, uh, which flies in the face of what you've just spoken about there. <laughs> yes, and my answer to that is, that's fine. Find me one, one eclipse prior to 709 BC that you can, you can verify. If you can't verify the eclipses, you, don't have, you, don't have, you have nothing. You have absolutely air, you know? And suddenly you're met by the sound of silence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but that doesn't bother me too much because uh, I mean, sometimes there's other evidence to base an opinion as to what star uh, um, a structure pointed to or whatever. And there, there's cosmology and there's mythology and there are other things to base it on besides just calculations. Mm. What's really off is they can't pinpoint a time frame that, yes, this temple might have pointed to Sirius on this date. I mean, it might have pointed to Sirius, but... We can't prove it was on this date. Right. So anyway, that, that's one thing. Now, the next thing is, it turns out that Venus actually has a remnant comet's tail okay, that nobody knew about. about. There's a, there was a European Space Agency probe called Venus Express. I think it's still collecting data around Venus right now. That was trying to explain changes in ion counts um, on, as it made its orbital passes of Venus, it was counting the number of ions in the atmosphere of certain types. And it was discovering the next time it came back around to make the count again that the count had changed. They were losing ions someplace. 
And so they managed to trace these ions. They were being blown to the backside of, of Venus away from the sun. And then they discovered they were actually being blown off the planet away from the sun. In other words, Venus had, um, and, and these, these ions, the, the loss of these ions happened at a great, to a greater extent as Venus got closer to the sun. Now, this is, this is the way that a comet's tail works. Now, when, when Venus makes its closest approach to the Earth, there are a couple of significant facts. First of all, Venus always points its same face to the Earth at that nearest approach. And that can be caused by a number of things, but it, one of the things it can be caused by is it can be reflective of the fact that two astronomic bodies have been influencing each other in the past. Right. There's a gravity. There could have been a gravitational lock at one time, and now their rotation maintains that relationship. Uh, the second thing is that this ion tail extends out into space millions and millions of miles and points directly at the Earth. So clearly, we have a suggestion that there has been contact between Venus and the Earth at some point, mm. and that there's some. Uh, remaining influence between those two planets, which the astronomers are saying there there isn't. But another interesting fact that turned up in in recent years, very recently, is um, they discovered when the Venus Express made its calculations of the rotation. I think they were trying to line up photographs that they had taken from by Venus Express with photographs that had been taken twelve years earlier by an, uh, an earlier probe, and by through some ground-based photography they had done. They were trying to line things up, and they discovered that there had been a 12-minute slowing of the rotation of Venus in the time period between those two probes. And, they, and the astronomers don't have a force to point to to cause that. So clearly there's some force acting on Venus right now that is unexplained. And so any astronomer who says, well, we know everything there is to know about Venus, and there's no way Venus could have slowed its... It could have circularized its orbit in such a small amount of time. The truth is, the astronomers don't have a fix on all of the forces that are acting on Venus. Okay, so it would be very rich of any astronomer then to purport to have all the answers or the solutions or to be able to say with any degree of definition that this is the way it is. Right. Absolutely. Um, okay, now, another key point I, I touched on before. We have found... Um, uh, basalt on Venus, which is a volcanic rock that forms in a few thousand years, but we haven't found confirmed evidence of granite. So that leaves the scenario in the ballpark of Belikovsky. He could theoretically be right until they find granite. It, his theory is still possible. Okay, we have a very weak um, magnetic field on Venus, and on Earth, the magnetic field is thought to have gotten stronger over time as more heavy metals sink to the core of the Earth. So that could be suggestive of the fact that Venus would be a young planet. Um, we have lots and lots of recent volcanic activity on Venus, which could be suggestive of the fact that it's a recent planet, a young planet. As a matter of fact, there, pretty much every mystery we have about Venus astronomically evaporates if you just postulate that it's a young planet. So and there is one group of scientists, um, the climatologists, who routinely say, look, we found a time machine in Venus. Venus is a, gives us an example of what the Earth's atmosphere was like billions of years ago. 
pretty much anything that's going on on Venus, we can predict, use as a prediction of what we're going to find to be true on the Earth. And so they do, they come as close as anyone to outright saying, look, Venus is a young planet. And of course, all this uh, lack of evidence then to support the detractors of Velikovsky's work must be very awkward for a lot of people. I mean, is there anybody who has done a 180 and said, hang on a minute, what I thought was correct or my acceptance of conventional wisdom with regard to his work is clearly not standing up and I'm now going to re-examine the work of Velikovsky? Or, or is, is it a case that it's the cry in the dark, such as the one that you make with your book, The Velikovsky Heresies, and that you're kind of foraging a lone path at the moment. What, what way are things now with regard to his work from the 1950s in light of all this new evidence? Well, my impression is that science is being conducted on two levels right now, and it has been for a long time. And the best proof I can... What, there's a public level and there's a private level. Okay. Um, and the best way I can help you see that is if you consider that the number of years that passed between the first Wright brothers' flight and the invention of the space shuttle is the same amount of time that passed has passed since the invention of the space shuttle and now. That's amazing. I mean, the difference yes. is there. Now, yeah, and we have not, in public, we have not progressed one inch from the space shuttle technology at the same time that every other technology on the planet has been racing forward. So clearly we're not being told about the advances that are being made in science. When you look at the fact that NASA canceled the space shuttle program, my impression when they did that was the reason they canceled it was because it's no longer cost-effective to even maintain the sham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've got technology that is so much better at so much lower cost, they'll just they, they'll hand this off to the private um, concerns, the private um, uh, proprietors, let them pursue the old technology that's outdated and the real science goes on behind the scenes with nobody knowing about it. Well, that's exactly it. And I remember the first time I heard that there were going to be space tourists and that this was being opened up to the very rich and people could go and head up into space on a little trip there if they had enough money. I just thought, hang on a minute, that <laughs> there, there has to be other stuff that we're not being told about. I personally refuse to believe that they just decided we can't take this technology any further so we're going to knock it on the head and allow people just to use it for pleasure that just it couldn't be true could it no it really couldn't be true <laughs> uh, there, there are so many interesting things that, that are that are going on connected with this um, I, I had a phone call actually uh, a few months ago um, my wife was the one who, who answered the phone and um, a lot of times I get phone calls that are, are business related that are just really solicitations or whatever they happen to be. Mm -hmm. And so she does a, a good job of screening calls for me a lot of times. And so the person on the other end, she didn't recognize the phone number. And so she, she asked, she said, uh, can I tell him who's calling? And he said, yes, can you tell him that it's Rafe Sharon calling? I'm Emmanuel Velikovsky's grandson. Okay, he's, he is a psychiatrist in, in New Jersey, in Princeton, New Jersey, just as his grandfather was, and just like his mother, Ruth Sharon, was, mm. who wrote a book about Velikovsky. He said that he had been uh, online, look, when, as a child, he had gone to several lectures that his grandfather had given. And um, he was online on YouTube trying to find um, if there were videos of those lectures, and what he turned up instead were radio interviews with me. 
And so, so he bought a couple of copies of my book and read it and wanted to call and say that I had made his year <laughs> because they had been, for, for his entire life, had been looking for any, any researcher to take an open mind about this material and, and try to present it in a, in a fair way. So I can imagine that call went down very well. <laughs> yes, actually it did. That's the sort of thing that we, we crackpot researchers live for, you know? <laughs> so. so how do you think then, Laird, the work of Velikovsky be treated in light of the fact that you've now brought it smack bang out into the open and you've managed to point by point disseminate the information with a rational and open mind and you've managed to say, well, hang on a minute, this criticism doesn't stand up because A, B, C, or D. That one doesn't stand up because of A, B, C, or D. Do you think that that will blaze a trail in the future with regard to your hope that the mainstream will begin to revisit the work of Velikovsky and use it possibly in, as a fulcrum for looking for new information with regard to what is actually going out there beyond Earth? Yes, um, I don't hold a lot of hope of that. Um, another question that I get asked by people is, well, how are the mainstream academics um, responding to the work that you've done? Mm. And, and my answer is, you know, that's really not even a question anymore. There is, there's such a vibrant set of researchers exploring various aspects of various questions who are making good, solid headway on their own without regard to the traditional academics, that it really doesn't matter what the traditional academics think. Mm. Because the, the, the ball is rolling, and they're no, no longer really in a position to stand in the way of the ball rolling. And I suppose a lot of that has to do with technology and the fact that information is so freely available compared to what it would have been 60 or 70 years ago. Uh, yes, that, that certainly, uh, certainly has helped a lot. Um, and... Social media also helps a lot because it makes it a lot easier for, to get word out about a particular idea. So what of the future with regard to your work and Velikovsky? Have you anything planned? Yes, actually, Velikovsky was my break. Um, I have um, a fifth book on ancient cosmology, the, the Centers on China, coming out in September. And then a sixth book that's almost written that'll be out as soon as I can convince the publisher to do it after that. Most publishers don't like to have two two books by the same author um, being released at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, Velikovsky uh, was really a break I wanted to take because I had intended for 20 years to, to write the book. I had actually contacted the acquisitions editor at the publisher and said, look, you know, I've always had it in mind to write a book about Velikovsky. If I did this, um, would you guys have an interest in publishing it? And he said, the truth is, we've always wanted to publish a book about Velikovsky, but we never had a book to publish. So it was a good fit, and I took a year off and wrote wrote the Velikovsky book, and that, that's sort of just a, a sideline. At this point, unless something really major changes in the astronomic world, um, there's not much more that I can say on that particular subject. Uh, I suppose if Velikovsky were flatly proved wrong, that there'd be material for a book there. Well, I think based on your book, The Velikovsky Heresies, it's highly unlikely to my mind that his work is going to be proved wrong because so much of it is just pointing in the direction of him having been quite accurate and knowing the sus of what's happening. Perhaps he didn't have everything to a T, but he certainly seems to have had quite a broad perspective on what was really happening, even if it did fly in the face of accepted convention. That's true. That's true. I, uh, I didn't find... I mean, I found areas where, Bel where Velikovsky was not... Um, 
specific enough to be able to support or refute. Uh, for instance, he tried to make qualitative arg arguments about chemistry. You can make a qualitative argument about astronomy, but you can't really make one about chemistry. Either the chemistry works or it doesn't. And so I couldn't really evaluate any of the statements he made about, about chemical interactions that might have happened between um, atmospheres or planets and things like that. Um, so there are areas there that I, that I really couldn't get into, but uh, there are lots of other areas where if you would just take a common sense approach um, to the idea, you would see that what's being presented in the traditional viewpoint can't be right. And common sense, I'm glad you brought that up because the book is quite obviously common sense. You take a common sense approach to all of the work of Velikovsky. Um, it is a detective story in a sense because you look at the information and you look at both sides of it and you say, all right, well, well there, there's a logical explanation for this or there isn't a logical explanation for that. And it's much easier when somebody takes that approach and doesn't already have an existing paradigm that they're looking to find information to fit that paradigm. Um, it just makes things much, much more, uh, much easier for a reader to actually make up their own mind based on the information as opposed to the the potential bias of an author and I think you're to be hugely commended for that because it makes a huge difference well that, thank you I, I appreciate that that's you know what I, what I try to do I have a friend um, who is an author and a playwright and she says that what she likes about my books is that I take her on the journey with me mm. and I never really thought about that I mean what I started I never really meant to write a book in the first place I was learning about the Dogen for myself and I was keeping notes as I went of what I was learning and trying to keep the notes organized in a way that was a lot of complicated material trying to make sense of it and realized that I had, an, had inadvertently organized a book that I could self-publish. And so I self-published the first book and um, did some um, low-level promotion of the self-published book trying to find pe groups and people I thought might be interested and one of the people who who uh, became interested was um, John Anthony West, the Egyptologist. And uh, he took that first self-published book and a manuscript for a second book to a publishing fair in New York City and personally shopped publishers to find Inner Traditions, which is the group that published my book. And for anybody who mightn't be familiar with Inner Traditions, well worth looking them up because there is just such a massive wealth of information with regard to all kinds of different topics. I'm, I'm a big, big fan of the work that they do. I am too. So the Velikovsky really was uh, just a, um, a break from the books on cosmology for me. Um, my sixth book on cosmology uh, wraps up a lot of, of loose ends. It basically ties together um, all of the different traditions I've been studying from Africa, Egypt, India, Tibet, China, Polynesia, and um, is an attempt to tie them all back to a single point of origin. So that's really where the, the main thrust of my work probably will be. And there are any number of other cultures that tie into that same tradition that could be pursued if I wanted to. I think if we went down that road, we could speak for days, Laird. <laughs> yes, I think we probably could. We probably could. And for those who might like to expose themselves to your books, of course, metaphorically as opposed to physically, <laughs> and would like to buy them, how can people get their hands on them? Okay, they're available pretty much anywhere. You could, uh, the best, you know, a good place to start is the publisher's website, which is www.innertraditions.com. But you can find them pretty much anywhere. You can go to Amazon and Google. Larry, I mean, um, 
search for Laird Scranton and it'll turn up all the books. Or you can Google Laird Scranton and it'll turn up um, 30,000 references to um, things that connect to me. Um, interviews or documentaries or books or whatever. So they're, they're pretty available out there. And we'll, um, we'll, of course, get the links up on our website as well so people can find them there. But tell us about your website, too, because there's a lot of stuff on it. Okay, actually, it's not my website. <laughs> it, it's actually a fan site. I had a fan contact me last year and say, you know, I've worked up a LairdScranton.com website mm -hmm. and <laughs> basically wanted me to, to agree to pay to have him maintain it. Okay. And, and my attitude was, you know, I've gotten along perfectly well without a website. People find me on Facebook and they find me through Google. And I don't really need more than that because things change all the time. There's no, I speak at conferences. It's very easy to find this information in, in other ways. But he decided he wanted to maintain the website anyway. And there is a contact link there that does reach me. And I think he's done a good job of pulling it together. But it, it, the odd thing is it's not really my site. Well, I think he's done a great job because I had absolutely <laughs> no idea that it wasn't an official site. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate what he's doing. And I'm, I'm hoping that... Um, that he's he's finding a way to be paid for the effort that he's putting into it. I didn't really see the necessity of it, but but I'm glad that it's there. Okay, and for those who are interested, it is LairdScranton.com. It's very well done. The new book is due out in September, um, and there are a number of... Con I'll be speaking at two conferences this October. I'll be at the uh, Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis, I think the first week in October, and at the CPAC conference in Rancho Mirage, California, the third week in October. And have you any trips to Europe planned at any point? Uh, I'm waiting for someone to invite me, actually. <laughs> we <laughs> well, we uh, had a reason to go, um, uh, a potential reason to go last year because of a film that was being made that would have taken us um, to Paris and maybe uh, to Africa. Uh, but funding is difficult these days for for uh, films. And so the uh, the filmmaker who was Argentinian could only get funding if he focused on a subject that had more to do with Argentina. Okay. So that project's been set aside for the moment but a lot of film projects are a lot of film projects take 20 years to get made so <laughs> i have hopes that uh, eventually uh, my work will will bring me in one way one direction or another to europe well i think no doubt and we're putting the word freely out there on the airwaves now as we speak <laughs> great thank Laird, you i appreciate it it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today have you any kind of parting message for anybody who might have been fascinated by the work or who might take issue with the work is there any recommendation you have for somebody who might like to approach this information beyond our interview for the first time well absolutely do i recommend doing what i've done which is find a subject you're interested in and pursue it because in your mind your impression is that surely someone has looked into this and looked to the bottom of it but most of the key questions that i've explored i've discovered that Nobody has ever actually gotten to the bottom of the question or they presented only super, you know, uh, opinions are based on only superficial uh, evidence. Mm -hmm. And so there are thousands of issues to be explored for someone who has curiosity to go do that. I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Laird Scranton, it's been fantastic speaking to you on Alchemy Radio. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Alchemy Radio. Sound.
sun of the morning light, old glory's in the sky. Across the pond, it's afternoon and the Union Jack flies high. We're on our first cup of coffee, we're on our third cup of tea. And we can't pretend to live on different planets, you and me. In this collision of worlds, watch the new day dawn on a distant shore. In this collision of worlds, oh, you can't sit this out no more. Abbey Road, Route 66, CIA. To the MI6 Right lane Left lane Metric Imperial Pounds Dollars Howdy Cheerio And V8 Ground To a V12 screen Hail to the Chief Well God save the Queen Cops Hobbies Tabasco Wasabi Pistachio Ice cream this collision Hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Alchemy Radio. Remember, we rely on donations to keep the show in its current free and advertising-free format and are extremely grateful for any help you can offer. There's no fixed cost on donations. Every little helps. So, for example, if you could spare us even the price of a bar of chocolate every month, this would go a long way towards keeping us afloat. Our donate button is on the website and all support and assistance is hugely appreciated. And indeed, thank you very much to everybody who has recently donated. Our next guest is Robert Shock and we'll be speaking about ancient civilizations. I'm really looking forward to that one. Hopefully you can join us then. Until next week, I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio. Analyze. Alchemy Radio. Conceive. Alchemy Radio. Believe.
Carnage.